guys. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Sean Baker, MD. So Sean is, what would you call him? Not the founder, but probably the most vocal proponent of the carnivore diet. I first came across Sean on Joe Rogan's podcast about two years ago, in which he, I think, introduced to many the concept or the idea of the carnivore diet, which is basically eating only uh, red meat. And so I've been interested in diet and nutrition and fitness and health for my entire life almost. And uh, I tried most diets, but this is one that I hadn't really come across before and never really considered. Um, But of course, the case that Sean made was compelling. And so since that time, I've uh, researched it more, Um, haven't done too much experimenting with it yet, but beginning to plan to uh, try some more formal experiments with it where I adhere to it more, more fully. But in any case, you know, I've always had lots of questions about it. And uh, since that time, it's become far more popular throughout culture. You've got massive cultural figures like uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson having adopted it and being very vocal about the benefits that he and his daughter and many other people have derived for it or from it rather. And of course, for those of you who don't know, in the Bitcoin space, there's a large contingent of uh, proponents of the carnivore diet. And you've got figures like Michael Goldstein from the Nakamoto Institute who have you know, been really devoted to spreading information uh, and creating resources for people to learn more about the carnivore diet and the, the benefits to be derived from, from adopting it. So anyways... Uh, I just thought, wouldn't it be, you know, this podcast is kind of a good excuse for me to reach out to uh, to Sean and, and say, hey, why don't you come on and we'll just have a chat. So there's not too much Bitcoin related content in this episode. I do ask him a bit about how much he knows and I try to get him to uh, to get involved. But most of this uh, episode is just a conversation between myself and Sean about uh, the carnivore diet and, and most of the questions that I've had over the last couple of years and haven't really had the chance to satisfy Uh, in conversation with an expert like Sean. He's got an insane resume from being in the Air Force, orthopedic surgeon, uh, breaking world records in various forms of uh, athletics, being a strongman champion, and of course his uh, popularization of the carnivore diet culminating in a book that's coming out in November called The Carnivore Diet. Anyways, I'm just super pumped that I got the opportunity to uh, sit down with a guy like Sean, pick his brain, and uh, have a chat about something that uh, obviously we're both incredibly interested in. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Let's do it. So Sean, what I, what I was going to do is start with, you know, because I, I reached out to you and said, are you aware that um, the Bitcoin community, it, there's a big, you know, mo- I don't know if you want to call it movement or interest in the carnivore diet in the Bitcoin community. And I just assumed that you probably wouldn't be aware of that. But I saw a, a presentation that you gave I think not too long ago, and you referenced Michael Goldstein. And anyone in the Bitcoin community knows that Michael is a you know a longtime Bitcoiner, and he's also an advocate of the the carnivore diet. So, are, are you aware that 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 the carnivore diet is such a big thing in the Bitcoin community? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know uh, Safe Dean, uh, Safe Amos. You know, he wrote the Bitcoin Standard. Yeah, yeah. he and I've had dinner together. Michael and I. Michael, the, the website I have, MeatHeals.com, is something that. Michael and I have worked on collaboratively. You know, I started it, and he 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 agreed to help, kind of kind of do the technical side of it. Yeah, so I've been I've been aware of that for a while. Uh, you know, some people like to call it uh, you know fiat food and fiat money. You know, <laughs> steak yeah. and Bitcoin are the the you know the antithesis of that. I suppose. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So sh- should I infer that you're a Bitcoiner as well as a carnivore? 
I am. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't made the plunge there yet. I'm, I've kind of, you know, I'm, I'm still uh, too uh, naive about that stuff. But I know Michael excited, agreed to help me set up a wallet. And, uh, you know, I've got, you know, Safe can, can advise me on that stuff. But uh, I had somebody send me some Bitcoin, you know, just kind of a, a little tiny bit on one of the alternate. You know, I know there's a there's a there's a sort of a. <laughs> rivalry amongst the different uh different coins you know the cryptocurrencies and i know some people call like to call the non-bitcoins the shit coins or the altcoins or whatever so i'm I'm still you know stepping back from that but I'm, I'm not opposed to it at all and you know at some point it probably will be part of uh uh my my sort of portfolio i suppose so did somebody send you a shit coin is that what you're saying it was it was called i can't remember what it was called i mean there's so many it was like Bitcoin, but some special a different edition, you know, like the uh, oh, what the hell is it? What's Bitcoin it? Cash. Know, it wasn't Bitcoin Cash. It was it was it was golly, I can't remember. It was like a who's the guy? You know, who's the guy that founded it? And I forget his name. I know the the, the, the theoretical guy. Satoshi Nakamoto. Guy. Yeah. Yeah. It was like it was like the Bitcoin Satoshi Nakamoto special edition something something. You know. Yeah. And I, I asked Michael about it. And he said, yeah, that's just, that's just stupid. So, <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, I'm with Michael on that one. There's probably over two, three thousand coins at this point. But the only one you need to concern yourself with in the opinion of I think the, the smarter people in the space would, would be Bitcoin. But uh, as you said, I mean, it's a real at when I first encountered the, you know, because I've been into health and fitness my, you know, since I was 13, 14 years old. So pretty much my entire life, health and fitness has been a, a top priority. So tried all the diets, been training my whole life, that sort of thing. Um, but when I first saw the kind of um, this carnivory, this car, uh, the carnivore diet pop up in Bitcoin, I was like, I, I didn't know what to make of it. But then as I looked into it further, I mean, it does make sense because we, as you said, in, in Bitcoin, people talk about fiat money a lot, right? Fiat that is, or money that is basically issued and has value by decree or because you're forced to use it by legal tender laws, et cetera. And so the corollary there is that, you know, the, 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 well, there's two. One is that in that sort of a system of, of easy money, of cheap money, and the way that the monetary system is structured, you get a lot of perversions along the economic, uh, in, in such an economic system. And one of them is um, lower time preference. And that can be in, in various dimensions, but one of them can be food. So you, you develop a society and a culture around people, you know, making their food and, and nutritional choices based on what's easy, what's convenient, what's satisfying. And then on top of that, what other people tell them is good for them, i.e. the ridiculous food pyramids that have, you know, morphed and changed throughout the years. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of Bitcoiners are, are looking into this now, because they don't accept the, the dogma that's been handed down. And then the other one is that, you know, I think a lot of Bitcoiners have a, either they got into Bitcoin because of this, or being in Bitcoin has, has kind of inspired this in them, a search for truth. You know, not taking for granted any sort of information, but they want to know what the truth is. And, you know, perhaps that quest has led them down the, the, the road to a carnivorous diet. But it is still fairly, you know, new. You know, it's 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 one of those diets that's just emerged over the last few years. I mean I knew in terms of public consciousness. I know, you know, we may have been eating this way for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. But for the people that aren't familiar with it, can you just give you know, can you just describe what it is, the carnivore diet? 
Yeah, you know, I'd like to just before I do that, you know, echo, I think this, you know, the people that come to this diet for whatever reason start to question, you know, and they get the results they do, which, you know, very often are good. They tend to question the overall narrative among a lot of things. And I think we see a, a significant overlap on people that have, quote unquote, non-traditional views on one topic will will roll into another. And so that's absolutely the case. But the carnivore diet, you know, in my, you know, and I've got a book coming out called The Carnivore Diet that I wrote. And in my, the way I like to define it is it's a diet that really is based upon, you know, animal foods as, as the essential source of nutrition. Uh, and then what we do is we either eliminate or in some cases limit plant food, you know, for the purpose of uh, improvement or optimizing health. And I think that's, you know, in a nutshell, uh, or in, in a fillet, the, uh, <laughs> the, the the crux of what the carnivore diet is. It's basically just realizing that meat is really human food. It's what really, you know, again, if we can talk about evolutionary uh, adaptations. It's what drove human adaptations. It's what we really evolved, why we evolved and what we evolved to eat. And uh, that is, you know, something that uh, I think uh, humans do very well when they're, when they get, you know, a lot of human food yeah now this is kind of an affront to the way that the narrative has been shifting over the last 10 20 years because we see in culture and society a big shift towards vegan or popularity of veganism or finding other ways to uh you know these uh beyond meat and things of this nature where people are are doing their best to avoid meat and then we have the you know, the various agencies telling us that it's good to reduce red meat and increase your consumption of, you know, fruits and vegetables, but also grains and thing, things like that, uh, which, again, I think we both know is, is founded on extremely questionable science. But nevertheless, this has become the dogma. And so when people hear a carnivore diet where you only eat meat, I think it's kind of shocking at first. How do you, when you discuss it with people that have, are coming to it the first time, how do you kind of overcome the, the disparity between what, they, what they've been told and where the kind of momentum and culture is shifting and what you're suggesting? Yeah, and so I think it's, this is very timely because I don't know if you saw the New York Times just released an article today, uh, an international collaboration of scientists of all that said basically the, the advice to limit or cut back on red meat is bad based on really weak evidence. And so I think if we, we understand that nutrition science in general mostly is predicated on large population observational studies, which are just tremendously flawed. You know, there's some people that say that they're almost a waste of time. And we should not do any more of these because we don't really get any really usable information uh, from them. And so much of our nutrition, uh, you know, sort of knowledge, if, if you want to call it that, is based on very flawed and very poorly done and very much uh, science that really can't tell us what we're supposed to do individually. Um, I think that for most people, you know, if, if they are if they are at a point where they're questioning their own diet, you've got to ask them, well, what have you been doing so far, and has it worked for you? And if it's not working, why keep you know why keep you know continuing on in, on the path you're on? And so um, we know that there have been you know historical examples of, of people throughout history, uh, and arguably it was more frequent the farther back we go, but certainly even in modern times, relatively modern times, there were entire societies that lived on basically meat-based diets. Now they may have had you know, a few you know, plants here and there, but generally they spent much of their time 
almost exclusively eating meat, and they were generally free of any modern diseases. You know, and, and some people argue, well, they didn't live as long, but you know, in, in some cases, like the Inuit, they they smoke at a rate of about seventy percent. They start smoking at age eight. They live in abject poverty. They don't have access to any health care. And we compare that with a modern society, but in general, they were free of diabetes and heart disease and cancer and all the modern sort of woes that, that so many of us are regularly seeing. You know, it's you know, I think between diabetes and heart disease, I mean, and cancer, that's something like 75% of the people in Western society are going to develop one of those three things. And so it's uh, quite common. And so um, the first thing I like to tell people is, you know, at the end of the day, we want to we look at what results we're getting. You know, results should, should sway you more than anything else in your own personal results. And so uh, I tell people, you know, if, whether you believe it or not, I don't see any real downside for trying it for a couple months. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You eat a bunch of t- you eat a bunch of steaks. You know, it's not like uh, you're going to have a, you're going to develop colon cancer in, in in two months. You know, it's just kind of silly to, to to think that. And so, uh, you know, at this point, it becomes easier and easier. When I was first doing this, it was seemed pretty unusual. You know, when I was on Rogan's podcast, even he looked at me like, "What the hell are you talking about, dude?" Right. Uh, but you know, as time has gone by, and now we have literally tens of thousands of people that have gone through this and they're all basically sharing the same experience. I mean, they are getting, uh, you know, in many cases, remarkably, uh, surprisingly good results. And, and, you know, you know, we're seeing diseases that would otherwise thought to be chronic and, and basically progressive and lifelong diseases are going away. You know, people are coming off medications, you know, the the typical stuff, you know, losing weight, improving blood pressure, improving diabetes, that's happening too. But I mean, even more so these sort of weird diseases that are thought to be, you know, things we have to throw very expensive drugs at uh, just to manage are actually going away. And these people are coming off medications. And so I think, you know, at this point, I just, I just point to the results. It becomes very easy. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing. You, you referenced uh, your appearance on Joe's podcast and that was less than two years ago, right? Yeah, it was, it was, it was funny. It was Pearl Harbor day, uh, 2017. So, uh, I remember when Joe invited me on, and he was giving me some dates. And I said, "Let's do it on Pearl Harbor Day." Oh, nice. It's kind of, kind of a funny, uh, you know, day to live in infamy. Maybe, maybe it'll do that again. <laughs> but my point in bringing that up is just that's not a long time, and and this thing has really over that that the interim period there has has gained a lot of traction. You've got more, uh, you know, more doctors, more you know, people in the health and and nutritional space talking about this. Like, like I mentioned at the beginning. The Bitcoin space is, is hugely into this, and it, and it seems to be, I mean, you've got to people like Jordan Peterson and his daughter who are, you know, some of the, he is, you know, obviously one of the most famous intellectuals of, of the current era, and, and he's out there saying that all he eats is steak, salt, and, and water. And it's just amazing the, the, the influence that food has on the body and the degree to which, well, people aren't aware of that. But like you said, I mean, I think part of the reason why this is probably spreading so quickly is because of the ways in which it helps you heal your body. You know, we, we, obviously there's a lot of vested, vested interests in the, in the status quo, you know, food, nutrition, and medical system. But I think you, you just referenced this, but you know, how many conditions that, that account for hospital visits are lifestyle, and chronic illness issues, you know, your, your diabetes, your, your heart disease, your metabolic syndrome, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I think it's somewhere upwards of 80%, you know, and 
if if we're saying that these are unnecessary, that all they require is you know a, a change in in diet and some lifestyle changes, I mean that could have a potentially enormous impact on the you know medical system and, me- and Medicare is a huge topic these days. Um, if people would but one educate themselves and two try it. You know, and because all the people, as you you referenced, it's Meat Heals, right? The website that you that you guys put up. Yeah, that's one Michael and I put together. Yeah, and that's just a collection of you know a couple hundred people that have put up their shared their their information. You know, I think it's uh, powerful. It is powerful. Story, anecdote, stories, stories change the world. They really do. I mean, you think about it. You know, when whenever a big event occurs, it's usually some anecdote. You can think about World One, World War One, where you know. Uh, uh, you know, we have a we have a shooting of a of a duke, and, and all of a sudden we're we're in World War One. But um, you know, the the thought about you know how it's grown significantly, and I think uh, you know it kind of reflects you know nowadays every nutritionist probably has an opinion about the carnivore diet. Now most of them it's an unfavorable opinion, but they have an opinion, so it's in the public conscious, particularly in the health and fitness and diet space. Um, you know, just like Bitcoin, I, I don't think there's a banker out there today that doesn't isn't aware of Bitcoin. You know, even though many of them may, or you know, whoever an econo- an economist or somebody, they all have an opinion. Some good, some bad, most right. bad probably. I know you guys are aware of that. Um, but but the same thing's happening with this carnivore thing because it is so polarizing uh, for the the nutritional status quo. And you're absolutely right. Uh, if you uh, have a simple uh, you know ten dollar solution to a you know trillion dollar pro- problem. Which it could be, you know, if I, and the trillion dollar problem is this growing healthcare crisis that we have, or I wouldn't say healthcare crisis, I'd say it's a disease, a disease crisis, and we have a disease management industry which heavily relies upon, you know, the, the constant throughput of sick patients that get marginally, you know, marginal symptom relief that we can, we can continue to sort of feed into that through, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and whatnot. Um, yeah, it's it's had a it's had a it's going it potentially has a huge impact, um, you know. And I think one of the reasons, you know, this isn't new. I mean, I certainly didn't invent people eating meat or only eat meat diets. I mean, historically, when I was doing research for the book, you can see it time and time again. Every few decades, somebody's talking about this and they're getting results. But we now share, uh, you know, in this age of internet, social media, you know, infinite accessibility. I mean, these things can really reach a lot of people very quickly. And I think that is really moving the needle more than anything else. And I know a lot of people talk about fad diets going to die out. Two years is going to be gone. May or be, may or, that may or may not be true. But I think if the results continue to occur as they're occurring, uh, you know, particularly with people that are tired of having, you know, name the disease, uh, it's going to continue to, to, to grow. And then the question becomes, you know, what do we have to do about the food system and, and so on and so forth? And how would this impact the healthcare system? Or are they going to continue to, you know, ignore it? The problem with the healthcare system, and as someone who's been in the healthcare system for most of his adult life, is we sort of pay lip service to prevention and lifestyle. You know, we talk about it, but we don't really fund it. We really don't. There's no technology driven towards that. That's something that, you know, I'm actually working on right now with another team to try to maybe, you know, develop something that 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 may be viable and and actually makes sense from a financial standpoint. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've heard you say before that we need to be training an army of prevention specialists. And I, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think we, you know, we live in a society where people wait until their body breaks down before they do anything about it. 
you know, and because they're lazy, because they don't want to take the responsibility. And also, you know, one of the tricky things with diet is that, you know, you emerge into the world, you're fed what your parents feed you typically, and then you just, you develop food habits as a result of that. And you just think like, this is the way that I feel, like this is how humans feel based on, you know, what your diet and lifestyle is. And it's not until you begin experimenting with, you know, the various diets, the various, you know, fitness regimens and, you know, lifestyle regimens that you begin to realize that tweaking it can change how you feel and sometimes dramatically, you know. So if you just think like, well, after lunch, I get sleepy. That's normal for humans, right? We take a little nap or whatever. It's like, well, maybe not, you know, maybe it's because of what you're putting in your body. And, you know, this is the one thing because when I talk to people about this stuff, it's like, I, I feel fine. And usually my response is, well, yeah, but don't you want to feel great? You know, why, why, why are you satisfied with, with fine? And I think the, the answer is because they don't realize that there's a whole other dimension of, of how they could be feeling energy levels and strength and mental clarity that's, that's actually available to them when they're just, you know, shoveling in the standard, you know, the standard diet crap. And again, I think that is why people become so passionate about this stuff, because it's like, wow, you know, they, they kind of, peels back the curtain a bit once once you get gain this this freedom especially if you're suffering from chronic illness you know i I know you're familiar with michaela peterson and she's just had a a litany of health problems throughout her life which i'm you know incredibly sympathetic to if you're someone like that in that kind of a situation and you make this change and you know 90 95 percent of those issues disappear in a relatively short period of time I mean, how liberated of a feeling would that be? And knowing that all you do, you didn't have to, you know, take pills for the rest of your life. You didn't have to see the doctor once a week. You just had to change how you ate and you, your life has been gifted this freedom as a result. Yeah, I mean, that is a, a very important concept. And, you know, like I said, as someone in their 50s, you know, my perception just based on observation was most people as they get to middle age, they gain a little body fat. They, you know, have some degree of musculoskeletal pain, whether it's back pain or knee pain or a little bit of that. They don't, you know, their, their sleep quality goes down. They get tired. They lose muscle mass. You know, they're, 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 you know, they just their quality of life goes down. Their digestion is what it is, which I thought was normal. But what I found personally, which was obviously very enlightening, was all that. When all those things for me went away, every ache and pain I had, you know, energy, you know, digestive issues, the little bits of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of mental issues that, you know, you, you know, you have blood pressure that just completely went away when I, when I sort of adopted this carnivorous diet. And now, I mean, I, I don't accept being sore or having <laughs> joint pain or any of that stuff. I think that's completely crazy to think that that would be normal, even at the age of, you know, nearly 53. And so I, I'm very fortunate and it's been something that, you know, many people, they, they just say they feel like they feel like they did in their 20s. And, and most of us, assuming we're reasonably healthy, you know, we, we're, we're, we're in prime physical condition and function. And I would argue that that's probably how we're meant to be for the most part, for most of the time we're alive. And then, you know, we should, you know, drop dead, you know, suddenly of something at age 90 or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these people that thinks we're all going to live to 180, like some of the longevity people that are trying to convince people they know the way to make people live to be 150. And I, I just... That, that, that frustrates me a little bit because I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, 
funny stuff going on in that space. But but anyway, there's a lot of products uh, to be sold to people that want to live forever. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. It's exciting. you know, and, and they never give you a money back guarantee. You know? <laughs> of course. How do you, you know, it's just like well, it's a good business to be in because you're like, yeah, you know, you tell this forty, yeah, you're gonna live to 120, and you know, you can make money off them for 20 or 30 years, and before they change to something else. But yeah. you know, it's 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 so. You know, like I said, until I see actually see human beings walking around at 120 years old that are robust, physically strong, uh, and functioning extremely well, I, I don't put much faith in what anyone's telling me with regard to that. And so I always tell people, get healthy today, stay healthy as long as you can, and that's the best you can do, really. Yeah, I, I agree. And I also think one of the important factors here is, I mean, with, with anything, but particularly with diet, is adherence. You know, it, you, the, the, the level of success you're going to experience is, is dependent upon your adherence, your discipline, et cetera. And, you know, simplicity is the, this is the quickest route to adherence, the most reliable route to adherence. And, you know, I, you know I've, been, I've like I said, I've tried everything. So I went down the route of, you know, doing all the supplements, the longevity, the glutathione, the nootropics, all this kind of stuff. And uh, I... I always come back to simplicity because it's it makes my lifestyle easier and you always make a trade-off but I I don't even find there's a much of a trade-off to be made I mean if I when I keep my diet simple uh, and my lifestyle simple no supplements none of that kind of stuff I don't it's not like I feel worse and I'm making a sacrifice I feel just as good it's just more simple and more cheap you know so why why bother with with you know a, a cupboard full of supplements when if you eat a healthy diet based on healthy food, and we'll get in a bit more uh, to exactly what that is, but um, keep it simple and keep it healthy, and you're you know ninety five percent of the way there. And then maybe that's maybe that's enough. I mean, what are, what are you going to get out of out of all the supplements? Maybe you get a couple more years, but at this stage, especially in the development, I mean, I think technology might have some interesting breakthroughs for longevity and, and, and things like that. I don't know exactly what form they'll take you know, whether it's some sort of cellular repair or whatever, but it does, it seems like the supplement industry, it doesn't have much to offer in that regard, at least not yet. No, yeah, I agree completely. I think that, uh, you know, compliance and I, there's, there's a friend of mine, you may know Stan Efferding, you know, he's, he's, uh, uh, he likes to say compliance is a science and basically, uh, you know, you've got to be able to do something. And what I tell people, I mean, the, the two ways that people fail on a diet is one, they don't like what they're eating. And two, they're hungry all the time. So if you have either of those things going on, I mean, your compliance rate long term is going to be pretty low, almost right. zero. You know, there's very many people that are uh, sort of uh, you know, masochistic enough to eat food they don't like and or be hungry all the time there's some people that can do that but not very many of them do that and that's why we have issues with you know long-term diet compliance and stuff because most of the diets ask you to live in some sort of caloric deficit or eat relatively unpalatable foods you know these lots of greens and salad and basically flavored cardboard is what i like to call it but so we don't we we have a hard time sticking to stuff and i think one of the things one of the advantages of, of, of a, you know, animal-based diet is, you know, most people uh, tend to enjoy the food. It's very, it's very satiating, it's very satisfying, particularly as you, you know, get good at preparing this stuff. And then the other thing is it tends to satisfy your hunger requirements. And so I think those two things work very well for long-term compliance. And then the simplicity factor, it's like, you know, if I have to sit there with a calculator and an app and you know, you know, 15 different supplements to, to figure out how to eat. I mean, it's it's really insane. If we look at any other animal in 
in on earth you know outside of domestic animals that we that we kind of take care of and screw up their health as well but anyway any wild animal i mean you you can't hand them an app and tell them how to eat i mean they're just gonna you know it's kind of like teaching birds how to fly i mean you just do it it's just a natural part of uh you know your your, your bodily function it's like trying to trying to regulate how you breathe i mean it's like we just breathe and you know eating should be similar in the same way as you know it should be as simple as you know you eat a food and then you eat it again when you're hungry and that's all you got to do and i think that's how most animals in the wild aren't worried about a balanced diet they're not worried about moderation uh you know there's a food that they're designed for i would argue that humans pretty well are designed to eat you know a meat-based diet now i'm not saying that they never obviously we, we, we eat an omnivorous diet and that's probably been the case throughout much of our evolution but i would say that the requirement to eat you know a particular special berry or special plant uh, being essential would have not been compatible with worldwide expansion of the human species i mean how could we have gone from africa to europe to asia to north america to south america you know, across the South Pacific, if there were some particular plant nutrient that we required, because we wouldn't have been able to do that. We would, we would, we would have remained isolated in Africa and likely have gone extinct, you know, because, you know, as a climate change, and this is what drove evolution, many people would say the climate changed about 3 million years ago, and it got very relatively cold. And then the tropical trees where all the primates were living in became very much uh, restricted. And so most of the uh, the land was savanna, grassland, and very much uh, significant change in uh, nutrition availability and therefore the adaptations that occurred after that. Yeah. And if you, if we look at, you know, 10, 15 year or 10, 15,000 year plus ago, so pre-agriculture, I mean, not, not only the variety, as you just mentioned, but if you look on a, on a caloric density basis, I mean, if you're a hunter gatherer, it's pretty damn hard to collect and And you have to understand, you know, vegetables at the time were, uh, you know, in most cases, far smaller than they are now. They're not the kind of, you know, GMO'd and, uh, you know, new manifestations of vegetables. I mean, it's a no-brainer. You, you you take down, a, you know, some sort of large animal versus collecting berries for the day. And, you know, the large animal feeds you for weeks, if not months, depending on the size of your group. And, you know, berries satisfy you for a couple hours. So I, I think that's probably, I mean, is there much evidence... What's the, what's the evidence to, to that we have currently about like the earliest human diets? Yeah, I mean, you know, it gets harder. I mean, obviously, when you start looking through the evolutionary data, I mean, it's it's a lot of sort of speculation. I mean, there there is some decent radioisotopic data, you know, that, but this dates back fifty to one hundred thousand years ago that shows a predominantly carnivorous diet. There's some sort of uh, teeth enamel stuff from Africa, which would go back farther, maybe a million years looking at barium and strontium uh, analysis, and they can figure out kind of the trophic level and where people eat. And, and those seem to indicate that humans fulfilled a carnivorous role and their, their diet was consistent with other carnivores based on that data. Uh, you know, I mean, there's certainly, there's coprolites and teeth enamel uh, scrapings that people point to where it shows more of a mixed diet. But I think that uh, uh, the there's no doubt that humans ate a eight animals and the question is how many of the, the how, how much of a percentage of the diet did it make up you know my bias and in, in what i've read certainly would, would point to a pretty heavily carnivorous based diet and, and again your 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 postulate about you know just optimal nutrients you know uh, you know strategy you know how to obtain that i mean you think about it if we know what kind of technology we had available and i'll point to guys like homo erectus which 
were around about 1.8 million years, and they, they kind of came into play, you know, about 2 million years ago, uh, as they left Africa and went and ventured into Europe when it was much colder, uh, you know, and the animal sort of population was very different. We had lots of megafauna. We had these proboscideans, which would be elephants, mammoths, mastodons, and so on and so forth. They became very effective at hunting them, and they only required a spear. They didn't require any fancy technology. Just a simple spear was enough for them to take down these big, giant animals. And you're correct that, you know, if they would have had access to some fruits and maybe tubers, particularly the fruit, would have been highly seasonal. And, you know, it's hard to preserve, you know, if, if we assume that the, the berries are ripening in the warmer months, you know, you can gather some, but then what do you, you can't really freeze them. You can't really, you know, you don't have, if, if you're gathering them in the warmer months, you don't have a way to really freeze them. So you can eat them up real quick. Remember, you're in competition with the birds and other animals that are eating these things. They're only sort of ripe for a couple of weeks out of the year. And so it, it could not have been a really viable long-term solution for, you know, chronic nutritional needs. And, yeah. you know, some of the, you know, most of the vegetables that we eat today weren't even invented. I mean, you know, certainly even like I'll point to broccoli, which first made its appearance in the United States in 1920. So it's not like we could have been eating that uh, thousands of years ago or tens of thousands of years ago. And so we've got uh, very much a different selection of food available to us today in the, in the supermarket than we had you know, even even 200 years ago, before we had modern transportation refrigeration. Yeah, I think I've also heard you mention on another podcast that you know today, especially in the nutritional community, it's all about you know finding all these different super nutrients and superfoods, uh, you know, from Japan or from the rainforest or from here and there, and putting it all together and constructing the best diet. But I mean, it seems the most rational or reasonable way to approach it to me would seem. What has the body evolved and been adapted to assimilate the best for, for optimal function? And that's certainly not, you know, because as, as you mentioned, you know, we were very dispersed, you know, in our, in our early human history, right? We couldn't, we couldn't collect and aggregate all those different things, and we certainly couldn't rely on them, you know, throughout the year versus, you know, a, a highly dense nutritional source like meat where, you know, it, it was... In all case, in all places where humans existed, a form of it was available, and you have to presume that that is the basis on which, you know, we the, the human body evolved. Yeah, I mean, the concept of you know the balanced diet or the you know eat the, the multicolored diet or eat you know right. foods that are grown all over the world. I mean, you think about it. What other animal? If you had an animal in the zoo who grew up in Australia, you would not be feeding them food that's native to Europe or. North America, or I mean, you wouldn't do that. That would that would interfere with their their system. You'd want you'd, you'd want to try to reproduce their native local uh, food source, and that's what we would we would expect to to happen with humans. And so, to think that one particular human is adapted to eat food from every single continent, you know, particularly when it comes to various different plants, um, is is kind of silly. And, and, and there, there's it's no wonder that we might have some problems. And that doesn't. Uh, even account for the you know the the post-industrial diet that we now we now sort of pretty much overwhelms or, or, or dominates our diet. You know we had the pre-agriculture, the post-agriculture, now the post-industrial diet, which is you know even farther removed from what we were probably designed to eat. Yeah, well, I mean, look in in the in the Bitcoin space, we're we're fond of you know saying the the the, the quote or the hashtag Bitcoin fixes this. You know, and, but what we mean by that is. A monetary a monetary standard predicated on Bitcoin would would you know cause this problem or issue to disappear or greatly improve it you know and I as you were saying that I just think like 
how fucked up is the modern food system? I mean, you look at a grocery store and a huge percentage of it is carbs and sugar, you know, and, and various forms of fat and oils and stuff like that too, but, you know, and the bad kinds. But how much would a, a return to a, a diet more in line with, you know, what we're adapted to benefit the most from, how would that you know, permeate through society in all the different ways, in, in mental health, in physical health, in mood, in productivity, like all, it's staggering to even think that because we seem to have gone so far the other direction where, I mean, it's, it's almost a wonder that we're, we're, you know, civilization is here at all based on that. But I mean, we're, we're getting our calories, we're able to survive. But it's always crazy to me how it's not obvious. We always talk about the medical system and Medicare and, and how it's overburdened, how much money it's, it's costing to operate, and still so, you know, so much criticism and so inefficiently that we don't look at the root cause. You know, this is what we look at in Bitcoin. What's the root cause of a lot of problems we see in society? Well, society is predicated on the monetary standard that it uses. And so if you're, if you're trying to look at root causes of problems, you're going to have to go back to that to try to fix them rather than trying to, you know, hit down every symptom when it pops up. And the, I feel like, again, this is probably why Bitcoiners are, are so attracted to this is because it's, it's coming at things from a foundational perspective and saying, if we could but fix this, you know, how many other things would naturally resolve themselves and how much better would society and culture be as a result? Yeah, I mean, I can certainly in the nutrition and health space, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, just looking, you know, back to agriculture, you know, you mentioned, you know, 12, 15,000 years ago, 10,000, whenever we want to accept that agriculture became a significant source of human nutrition, we saw just a complete uh sort of degradation of the human's uh, individual human health. I mean, before that, we, we can look clearly at fossils from, you know, pre-agricultural populations, agricultural populations, and differences night and day. I mean, humans actually lost about 200 cc's of brain size, uh, you know, going onto a grain-based diet. Uh, we got smaller. We lost about six inches in height. Our bone uh, structure became weaker. It became disease. Our teeth uh, you know, same thing, lots of dental problems. And these are the things we can see in the record, and we can only imagine what other issues people had, you know, with infectious disease problems and chronic disease starting to see. And we, we started to see heart disease, you know, even in ancient Egyptians when we look at some of the mummies, and they were, you know, largely a grain-based society. But, you know, we go back to the, to the modern age where, you know, everything, you know, nutrition, food, I mean, basically is about uh, shelf life, you know, product stability and, and profit. I mean, this is the reason food companies make food. It's not to sort of <laughs> preserve or improve our health. I mean, right. it's to give us cheap calories so we shut up and don't complain about being hungry. But I mean, it's, and you know, they, they certainly, they, it's to their advantage to make it tasty and addictive. Uh, and they're very good at doing that. And they figured that, figure that out. You know, they figured out that algorithm with the bliss point and so on and so forth. And so uh, to disrupt that, you know, I think if you could take, because, there are people that utilize the healthcare system, you know, disproportionately. You've got the sickest of the sick that use up something like 80% of the resources. And so if you could target those people and say, hey, look, we're going to actually subsidize your, your nutrition and put them on supervised, you know, uh, meeting meal plans and lifestyle plans, you could probably make a huge dent. And the rest of the people can kind of pick and choose where they want to be, how, how, you know, you know, whether we subsidize that or not. I mean, I, I just wonder, 
if we had, you know, I, I think the food industry is huge. I mean, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. And so they've got their interests and they want to keep, they want to preserve status quo and continue to enlarge their market um, and, and develop new markets. Uh, but is there, are there other markets or other market forces that could, could sort of come in and uh, totally revolutionize that through a more, you know, whole food based approach in, in my view, an animal food based approach. And I think you might see large companies that employ people, insurance, insurance companies, the insurance industry, the, you know, just the, the overall uh, employment industry, they might have enough vested interest to say, hey, look, we're going to subsidize not only the health, but the nutrition of our of our employees. And would that be enough? Is that powerful enough to do this? You know, right now it's kind of still a grassroots yeah. uh, movement and just a bunch of people, you know, jumping and yelling on social media. But <laughs> to make a to make a profound change, you know, I think you're going to have to involve some big, big, big players, you know, in this overall picture. Yeah, you may be right. And I'm just hoping um, because that is relying on, you know, you're trying to lobby certain groups or whatever to put the the proper funding or behind this or attention on this you know these these large corporations and you know will adapt to our demands because ultimately they want our money and and fair play that's how that's how markets work you know so if enough of us are demanding a certain thing you know and and so in this case better food and we're willing and able to to pay whatever premium is required then people will will offer it and i i know in the states this is you know, there's a probably it's probably the place with the most options now. But you've got all these smaller companies, you know, popping up that offer subscription boxes with you know high quality meats and you know paleo products and all this kind of stuff. And of course, it's it's still relatively small portion. But you know, the, hopefully through our demand, those ones will be the ones that that get bigger and more people will demand them. They'll the cost will come down and you know. It, it, at the end of the day, it's up to us, right? Our our demand, our demand, and the choices we make is what creates the, the the big companies around us. So, you know, it's it's all a matter of us making the right choices and the choices that serve us, you know. But one of the 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 other corollaries to Bitcoin is this idea of sovereignty, right? If somebody else is controlling the value of your money, they can inflate it away, they can restrict your access, etc then you don't have financial sovereignty. So, you know, that's another big part of Bitcoin is being in control of your money. Um, but the other, you know, with with the diet thing, and one of the issues that I'm very interested in is the impact on mental health. You know, especially for young people these days, mental health is such a, you know, depression and mood disorders and suicide and these things are, are alarming at this stage and, and seemingly growing problems. And Again, it's it seems to be overlooked the role of diet in this process because you know the 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 standard American diet, the modern diet, is most people would agree is highly inflammatory, and we're starting to realize that inflammation is a you know one of the big drivers behind uh, depression, mood disorders, or for lack of a more all-encompassing term, relinquishing kind of your the sovereignty over your consciousness, having too many factors. Uh, you know, Im- impacting your 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 conscious sovereignty, and if you just remove those, if you stop, you know, remove the meddling, as it were, remove the inflammation, then how much of a resolution in in some of those issues would we see? I mean, what's your been your experience with that, and the people that you've been helping and sharing this information with? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. You know, many people fail to believe or recognize that. 
you know, our brain participates in, in our overall physiology just like any other organism does. And, you know, when we look at what is a indicator of proper brain physiology, I mean, many times it's our mental health. It's how we communicate. It's how we think. Uh, you know, it's a stability of our mood. And so certainly uh, it is almost ludicrous to think that what we eat does not play a role there. And, you know, what I'm seeing very frequently, in fact, it's one of the more common things I see is that people that go on a meat-based diet that have issues with either anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, uh, things like schizophrenia, even autism, note a, you know, often a dramatic and significant improvement in, in their symptoms. Many people are that are on lifelong antidepressant medications are able to completely come off of that. And so it is clearly playing a much bigger role than we think it is. And I think what we're seeing within the population that mental health disorders are skyrocketing. You know, if we look at the, the incidence of depression back, you know, around World War II compared to where they are now, and it's something like, you know, four or 500% increase. I mean, the number of suicide attempts is going up. The kid, kids on antidepressants is going up dramatically. And some of that obviously is uh, a greater propensity just to prescribe more drugs for these things or, or to cast a wider net to diagnose everybody every behavior out there has to have a diagnosis right. attached to it right. and then therefore and therefore there's a medication that you can you can provide for them but uh, yeah I mean it is it is you know I'm, I'm highly impressed by the amount of people that resolve mental health issues uh, by changing diet yeah uh, and, and- to that point, I mean, you're so right, and it's so crazy that any deviation from some, you know, poorly articulated norm of behavior is now uh, a pathology of some kind. You know, like, oh, you're you're a little bit more active than the rest of the kids, or you're a little bit underactive, or you're a little bit too inquisitive, or you ask too many questions, you put your hand up too much. You, you know, there's a there's a classification, and as soon as there's a classification, there's someone's gonna, you know, provide a quote unquote solution for that. It's, you know, we've gotten. We got a lot of work to do, I guess, but you know that's that's I'm sure part of the motivation for you and sharing this knowledge and spending the time and writing books and doing podcasts like this is just you know you realize how important it is, so you you try to get as much information out as you can. Um, I want to get into a couple of nuts nuts and bolts here. Uh, so I guess I'll start with one is a couple people that that talk about the carnivore diet. There's a few different approaches, I guess I'll say, and so I think yours is more you know, steak and water and salt and a couple other things on the peripheries is sufficient. And other people talk about nose to tail because there may be some nutrients that we're missing in just, you know, eating steaks. What's your response to that? Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, what I sort of espouse is based on the results that I've seen, you know, observing, you know, now tens of thousands of people. And so I think, you know, when we're looking at what we recommend, there's theoretical sort of sort of recommendations based on, you know, speculations that sometimes don't necessarily apply or there's, you know, hard endpoints. What I like to say, you know, what would actually happen when people did this particular thing. And so while my diet is generally pretty simple, um, you know, it's, it's mostly steak and sometimes I'll have some eggs and once in a while a piece of seafood and a little bit of dairy here and there. Um, there are other people that, you know, want to say, well, I really want to make this diet makes sense to everybody else that has that is sort of under the impression that the you know the the rda numbers are you know set in stone and, and you know moses got them from god and handed them down to everybody else 
Whereas when we, when we actually look at the RDAs, we realize that there's very significant flaws in the way those things were derived and calculated. And so what I see is an attempt to stick a, you know, a square peg into a round hole. And so we're trying to make this diet match the diet that, that assumes nutrient sufficiency, assuming everyone is eating a grain-based high-carb diet with all the attendant problems that come with that, which, which drive up nutrient requirements, which have a number of anti-nutrients which pre prevent absorption of those nutrients and so i don't think we even know what the rda for a carnivore is and i would say that we've got you know the, the people that have been doing this the longest you know you talk about outside of the historical three million year history of this but the people we can study and talk to today that have been doing it the longest really they just they, they tend to do it the, the simplest way possible they generally steak and water and you know and, and, and some other things if they enjoy them but they don't really rely on those things uh, but there are other people out there that are pushing its nose to tail, and many of them think you got to eat the organs raw. And uh, I think I don't think that's necessary. I haven't found it to be true in my particular situation. You know, and I've sat there and literally broken world records as an athlete on nothing but steak and water. I've been doing this for you know nearly three years now, and so I think at some point, if those nutrient nutrient deficiencies were going to manifest themselves, uh, I would see something at least an athletic performance. You know, you don't break world records when you're sick. I mean, that just doesn't typically happen. Um, and, and so it's kind of a, sometimes that frustrates me. I'm not opposed to that approach at all. I think if it works for you, do it. But to make a sort of con general consensus statement that all people need to do this uh, makes it more complicated than it needs to be. And it sort of dissuades a lot of people from trying it because a lot of people are like, you know, I really don't like eating raw brains. I mean, I, I don't know that I can I can get into that, right. and they won't. They'll dismiss the diet. When I tell people, you know, hey, go just go to Wendy's and get some burger patties, you're fine. That is more accessible to the more majority of people. And I think if we want to impact, um, you know, the most people and 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 sort of rescue the most people, it has to be a simple solution. It has to be accessible both financially and accessible both, you know, from a mental standpoint to think to get their head around what they need to do. And when we overcomplicate things. Uh, it, it, it really, like we talked about, it, prov it provokes anxiety. You know, we get into what supplements do I need to take? And I would say it, it doesn't seem like there's a diet that, uh, you know, a diet doesn't seem like it, it makes sense if we have to heavily supplement that or over supplement that. You know, the thing about the organs, I think the, the, the behavior we see, you know, if we look at human beings, they started out most likely as scavengers. And so the organs were already picked off and gone long before we were able to access the meat. And so we probably spent a lot of time early on just eating you know whatever meat was left over it would have been rib meat muscle meat you know hindquarters uh, maybe maybe we got into some bone marrow and, and some brain but that probably wasn't the majority of our calories and even if you look at a giant animal the vast majority of its calories are coming from the muscle itself the muscle meat and we don't know what happens in a surplus situation i think early humans were in a surplus situation and when we absorb when we observe modern tribes they're often in a subsistence situation. So they're eating the skinny animals. They're eating, you know, they're, they're, they're having a hard time getting them because they've been forced off. You know, hum, modern humans have kicked all the, the, the hunter-gatherers off to the edges of the earth. And now they're in these little horrible places that they, they wouldn't have normally chosen to live. And now their animal selection is harder, so on and so forth. And, you know, we killed off all these megafaunal animals 25 to 50,000 years ago. And so we ended up with a very different... Uh, food choice than we have now. And so I think the organ seeking behavior that we see is probably fat seeking because if you think about lean animals, you know, and I'm not talking about big fat elephants, I'm talking about antelopes, which we ended up having to hunt later on. There's no fat on those animals. And so the only place you're going to get the fat 
is around the organs. And so some of that behavior to, to eat organs is probably just fat. And there's fat-soluble vitamins in there. But if you can get fat through, you know, another source, and that's why a lot of people that do this long-term preference, you know, things like ribeye steaks or fattier cuts of meat because they're getting the fat-soluble vitamins to the amount that they need. Obviously, they're getting enough protein. And it seems to be doing them just fine. There's just, you know, I surveyed this carnivore population uh, you know, in 24 hours, I got 10,000 response. I got 10,000 people submitting submitting survey data to me, and 85% of the people did not eat organs on a regular basis. Right. You know, so it was it was like 85% of us are not eating any significant amount of organs. You know, a significant percent never never eat them, and the results across the board are pretty much the same. You know, as far as general populations on people reversing disease, coming off medications seeing subjective subjective and objective measures of health getting better. So I, I tend to step back and say, if you want to do it, that's fine. But if you want to prescribe that, that that's the only way to, you know, even thrive is, is in my view, incorrect. Yeah. Now, you, you just mentioned, um, you know, the Wendy's burger patty, you know, being a better alternative or, you know, more convenient than than whatever else. Another place where you seem to diverge a little bit from other people in the space is, you don't emphasize, you don't overemphasize the benefit of a, you know, grass-fed, free-range sort of thing versus, you know, your, your typical, potentially industrial-farmed, you know, cattle, steak, etc. And you, you, you say that the, the difference is, is relatively negligible. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And again, this also, again, goes to accessibility for the average person. So there's a lot of belief out there that, you know, eating, you know, a steak that you get from the grocery store is like poisonous. I mean, oh, my God, it's got, you know, a nanogram of estrogen in it and it, it may have had antibiotics six months ago. You know, this is a, this is sort of the belief is how that that is somehow some inferior, awful food and that if you're going to eat that, you might as well eat Oreos. I mean, this is, I mean, absolutely the problem here is, is if we if we demonize that food, we are knocking out, you know, something that's probably 99% as beneficial as, as one of these other products, you know, these grass-finished organic products, and, and, and discouraging people from doing this. And so while I don't discount the value of raising animals in a regenerative fashion because it does have an impact on the environment, I think that's something we need to support, and I'm extremely supportive of that. I'm constantly saying we need to do that either with if we can afford to do that for the people that can't afford it and, and many people can't or even even just vocally supporting these guys and getting behind these guys and vote with your you know your your, your you, you know your your capacity to vote when that comes up or just letting these people know they're doing a good job uh but you know the, the data and the same thing you know when we look at people that eat grain finished versus grass finished really no difference in the outcomes you know at least from what i've surveyed these people Texas A&M did a study on this a couple of years ago, looking at this specifically. There's very little human data where we've actually looked at humans that eat grass finish versus grain finish and see what's, what what happens to them. And the, the study they did, you know, was looking basically at biomarkers. It was mostly looking at blood lipids and I think blood pressure. And there was no significant difference between the two. And in fact, the grain finish group had a slight advantage, you know, maybe a little bit higher LDL uh, compared to the grass finish, but it wasn't it really wasn't significant enough for me to say it, it makes a difference one way or the other. And that's been my, the, the experience of the community. Um, I, so I, you know, I, I, I encourage people if they can afford it and they enjoy it because, you know, quite honestly, some people, again, this goes down to liking the food you eat. Some people just don't find grass finished beef that palatable. 
I mean, it depends. I think it depends on where you come from and what your background is and where you've raised and what you've grown up with. Mm -hmm. But there's certainly a lot of people that really like beef that's finished on grain. Um, the taste of it, it's, it's, you know, it's got a better, you know, many people think it has a better fat flavor profile. And so uh, while I think there is improvements we can make across the board in all of agriculture, whether it's plant or animal agriculture, to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, hey, let's just make all cows on grass, um, I think is, is kind of short-sighted. And I think there's more nuance to, uh, to that than, than, than we give it credit for. Yeah. And does the same hold true for your approach to, you know, wild game meat? In terms of the nutrition, like uh, setting setting aside the, you know, maybe moral or, you know, non-nutritional argument there where the animal might have enjoyed a, you know, a better life if they were free to roam for, you know, the majority of their life versus being in a, some sort of a farm. But nutritionally, is that the same hold true for wild meat? Yeah, so I mean... I mean, wild meat is fine. I think if, you, if you're a hunter and you like, you know, getting venison or elk, I mean, that's a great source of food. Uh, I think there's uh, uh, some of the animals, you know, the only problem some people run into is they're a little lean. And so, you know, we know that if you're eating a meat-based diet, you got to get energy from somewhere. And if, you, if it's all protein, it's, it's difficult to do. So you need enough fat. So some people will find they need to um, supplement, augment their fat, you know, with you know, tallow or something like that to to kind of round that out. But I, I think, uh, you know, the, the argument about quality of life for these animals, again, we have to realize that chickens aren't pigs and pigs aren't cows. And there's a big difference between the way these are raised. I think chickens probably have the worst, uh, you know, life experience as far as this industrialized farming goes for those ones that do that. You know, they're usually five weeks and then they're slaughtered, so they don't have very long of a life. Cows, for instance, you know, and I've been with a lot of ranchers and been on feedlots. I mean, those guys actually have it pretty good. I mean, they spend the majority of their life in pasture regardless of how they're finished. They're not like some people seem to think they're stuck in a box and fed corn from the day they, you know, they, they wean from their mom. But that's not the case. I mean, they are, are you know, roaming in the fields on grass. Uh, then they spend, you know, a couple months, three months typically in a feed yard where they're still getting grass and forage, and then they gradually add a little bit more grain, and the grain is only about 10% of their diet, and they have actually quite a bit of room to, to move. By law, they have more room than they even use. I mean, you know, they've got, every cow is required 200 square feet, at least in the United States, which is a lot of room, yeah. and they never use it all because they're herd animals, and what they do, if anytime you go, they always pack together because they that's what herd animals do, that they cluster because they're worried about a predator, and that's just, that's just their natural sort of instinctive behaviors just to kind of cluster together. And so when you have these pictures of feedlots and you got cows clustered together, it's not because they're forced to, it's because they, you know, for the most part, for most of their time, they're, they're wanting and choosing to do that. And so, um, so, I mean, yeah, like I said, it's much more nuanced than we think it is. Uh, there are, there's work to do in all, all arenas. I think if we listen, you know, we told the agricultural industry, the animal agriculture industry, Hey, cut back on methane emissions and water usage and so on and so forth back in the seventies. And since that time they've, they've reduced those, those emissions and water requirements and feed requirements by something like 30%. I mean, they've dramatically, they've done better than almost any other industry. You know, like we could compare that to the transportation or energy sectors where they haven't made the, the, the strides at the animal agriculture industry and we know we have uh you know there's technology out there that's going to allow even further improvements and you know both with regard to animal welfare safety and efficiency that that uh that, that can be utilized yeah well you bring up a good point in 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 the 
the environmental component of the carnivore diet. And I, I'm sure you've drawn the ire of certain elements of society because there's a lot of uh, press in the mainstream these days about the negative impact of animal agriculture, particularly beef and cattle, whether it's cutting down the rainforest uh, to, you know, uh, grow soybeans for feed or for, you know, for farm, cattle farms and stuff like that. And, there, you know, it's just been, or if it's uh, cow burps, cow farts, as they're called, you know, how much have you looked into that? Do you think it, uh, do you think there's much validity to it? What's your response? Yeah, I mean, I've looked at it extensively. I've talked with experts from all over the world about this issue. And I, I think compared to the average physician or, or layman, I'm, I'm pretty well versed on this stuff. And so there's a lot of oversimplification of, of, of this sort of, uh, uh, you know, this, this, this concept. And so, you know, just in general, when we talk about the greenhouse gas emissions, that seems to be the, the hot button right now that people are worried about, you know, climate change. And, you know, obviously there's people that don't feel that man is, is contributing to that, but whether or not you, wherever you fall upon that argument, if we're staying within the framework that, that, you know, man is causing climate change, then we have to look at the big picture and put things in real perspective. And so the FAO, which many people would cite as a credible reference for saying how much, you know, greenhouse gases are used in the EPA, which would be another credible source. You know, worldwide, they'll say that 14% of greenhouse gas emissions come from animal agriculture, which is not an insignificant amount, and probably about maybe two-thirds of that might be coming from the cows, so we would say 9% or something like that worldwide. And this is based on a life cycle assessment, so every little thing that goes into making a cow, from the crops that are planted, that they're fed for those that get grain, to the transportation, to the packaging, to the butchering, to the slaughtering, you know, everything that goes into making that cow is calculated in that life cycle assessment. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't do the same for transportation and energy, you know, because with transportation, all they did was count what comes out the tailpipe of the car or the back of the jet. And they didn't calculate, you got to build the planes, you got to build the runways, you got to build the roads, all of that has an impact on the environment. Well, but they didn't, they, they didn't count those. So it's really an apples to oranges comparison. But even beyond that, if we say that those four, the 14% of animal agriculture that is contributing to greenhouse gases, we have to realize that something like 70 to 80% of those gases are not being emitted in, in developed countries. Most of that is coming from third world countries or developing countries, you know, things like places like India and sub-Saharan Africa and, uh, you know, parts of Asia where they don't have very uh, efficient animal agriculture uh, practices yet. In fact, it's estimated that 70, 80% of all animal agriculture is still like stone age technology or thousand years old. I mean, they're still raising these things and it's very inefficient. The, the animals aren't very healthy. They're not sort of well-bred to, to produce, you know, efficient amounts of, of, of meat. And so if you could change that, you could double, you could literally double the food population, you know, the animal agriculture production just by doing, making those simple changes around the world. But if we look at developed countries, and I use the, the U.S. because I've, I've got pretty accurate and, and recent numbers on the U.S., if we look at greenhouse gas emissions throughout by economic sector, we see that agriculture in the U.S. is about 9%. Animal agriculture only accounts for about 4% of that, whereas plant agriculture accounts for 5%. And then among that 4%, only about two of it comes from cows. So cows produce about 2% of our greenhouse gases uh, based on carbon equivalents. That includes methane uh, in the United States. And then we compare that to the transportation, energy, and, and industrial sectors, and, and then 
between the three of those, it's something like 82%. So we have 2% versus 80%. And then we're talking about how much impact would it be for me to give up beef? And so the calculations on this have been done. You know, if you look at the U.S. emissions totals and take 2% of that and compare it to the world, the world totals, you know, if we were and, and just say we were to make every single person in the United States go on a vegan diet and we were somehow magically able to make all the cows disappear and the pigs and the chickens and the horses and the cats and the dogs because they cats and dogs actually contribute to our uh, environmental footprint, believe it or not. In fact, much more than you'd think. But the, if we were to do that and make all the animals disappear and everybody went vegan, the difference in greenhouse gas emissions worldwide would be 0.36%. So, I mean, it's like, what are you gaining by making every person in the United States a vegan, all 330 million of us, basically nothing. And so the only place you would have a significant impact would be like saying, go to India and make everybody in India a vegan and kill all their cows, and that's going to piss them off because their cows are sacred. Or go to Russia or go to China and you know kill all those cows and make all those people vegan. Then you might have something like a you know five percent difference or something like that. But it's still impractical, implausible, and it's fraught with all kinds of uh, problems. You know, we know that if we take animal agriculture out of the system, the nutrient, the agricultural system will first of all it will collapse. But beyond that, if we, if we were to pretend we could feed everybody with plants. You would see critical nutrient deficiencies in numbers of things like iron, zinc, lysine, to name just a few. And so we would see a nutrient-deprived population, which had, which probably would have sufficient numbers of calories, by the way. We could feed them calories, but they would be, you know, kind of what we have now, a bunch of fat people that are nutrient-deprived. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, we're, we're probably seeing a, a version of that right now in in the way that that that, that people are eating. You know, and I've, when you're describing this, I'm, I'm seeing so many... Uh, similarities between, you know, because the media latches on to something oversimplified metric and then just puts it on the loudspeaker and that's the download that everybody gets when really there's so many nuances uh, to this and, and, you know, and the, there's so many uh, comparisons to Bitcoin, you know, people talk about Bitcoin's energy usage, you know, and it's, oh, it's, you know, it's boiling the planets because it uses this much energy. But similar to the, you know, what you were just mentioning with meat, whatever the actual negative impact is, and it, I take your point that it's probably overstated and certainly wouldn't be resolved if everyone just shifted to a vegan diet. What is the value of, you know, there's, a, there's some limit where it's acceptable. Right. Because if everyone was on a diet where which promoted longevity, which reduced chronic disease, which means it reduces the burden on the, the, the medical system and all the different negative impacts on society and environment that that has, you know, all the positive benefits that could be derived from a people, you know, eating a, a better diet, you know, they're more productive, they're more stable, longevity, less burden on the system. Those are things you pretty much can't measure. But whatever that the answer to that is, is there is a point at which you'd say, well, all of that is worth a certain amount of negative impact. Now, I'm not being an apologist for environmental degradation. I'm, you know, I'm, pro I can, you know, I'm very much concerned about the environment. You know, I don't want to preserve it as, to the to as much as possible. But you know, these these sensationalist arguments and and things that are said in the media don't do anybody any good, you know, because it, it, it diverts our attention from seeking the truth of the matter and understanding all the different ways in which it impacts to the upside and to the downside. And I think, you know, 
as we've been discussing this whole time, there's a tremendous amount of upside to the human body getting the nutrition it needs. And I think a lot of the issues that we see in society today from many different perspectives, health and social welfare and all that kind of stuff would be dramatically improved if, if, if that were more the case, if people were putting you know, better fuel into their bodies. Yeah, I mean, and some of that we can actually measure. I mean, they're, they're, you know, if we look at the U.S. healthcare sector, I mean, it puts out 10% of our greenhouse gases. Right. And so right. if, if cows are producing 2% and the healthcare sector is producing 10%, well, if you're no longer participating in the, in the 10% healthcare sector because you're healthy, and, and this is a, the, the case I'll make, is people are coming off medicine. They are getting out of the healthcare sector when they go on a high-quality, animal-dense, nutrient-dense diet. You know, they no longer rely on that you know, that, 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 that environmentally damaging healthcare sector. When, you know, when I worked in the healthcare sector, you know, doing surge, I mean, we made so much trash. I mean, it was incredible. One operation would fill up 12 trash bags, you know, it was just like insane the amount of garbage we would make. And the other thing that we've seen, and again, doing surveys on people on this diet, they eat a lot less food. They produce a lot less waste. They don't produce as much plastic and glass and, you know, cardboard and, all these things that we, we fail to, to sort of account for compared to people that eat a more processed or even a plant-based diet, which has, you know, probably an order of magnitude more you know, uh, packaging material. And, you know, the, the amount of food we waste in the United States, I mean, it's something like 40%. The majority of that is rotting fruit, rotting vegetables and baked goods. I mean, this is what we're throwing away for, for various reasons. And I mean, I can't remember the last time I've thrown out any meat. I mean, it's been forever, you know, and even if even if there's something that I'm worried about, I'll give it to my dog. So we're at least, you know, making zero, almost as, as little waste as possible coming from my house relative to my neighbors who eat, you know, a mixed diet or even even a, even a vegetarian vegan diet. And so it's how we frame it. You're right. You know, you people like to define the argument in the set of you know, in a narrow window and they, they get to determine what the metrics are. And you right. say, wait a minute, what about this? What about what about if we, 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 we broaden uh, the uh, scope of the conversation? Then it starts to become less unclear and, and more nuanced and more subtle. And we get a bigger picture of, you know, how does this all play out? You know, I'm, I'm with you. I don't think we should be destroying the, the planet. You know, when we see uh, India and China dumping gazillions of gallons of you know, tons of uh, plastic into the ocean. I mean, that's uh, probably a bigger issue than, than me eating a steak in, you know, in, in California. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, where do we want to fight the battle and what's going to actually make a big impact and what are the pros and cons? And I think there's a lot of people that are excited and they feel, particularly the young people that are kind of co-opting this environmental movement and trying to make it a dietary movement. I think that's very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's uh, uh, I think... For better or worse, it's bringing the discussion, I think, with the, pol the political climate right now, it's bringing the discussion to the table, and I think it needs to be, but I think it needs to be looked at, you know, in a, in a very broad way and, and put a microscope on everything and, and really challenge these assumptions. And I, it, like I said, it was very nice to see uh, some of the pushback from people that are, you know, sort of pro-meat putting out stuff and say, hey, wait a minute, let's look at this, let's look at this science, yeah. and we're challenging that. And, and, I, and, and like I said, I've got a... Uh, we've got a scientific study coming up on the carnivore community that will be published, uh, done by a major university coming up, and I think that's also going to be something that's going to change the narrative a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more in in that, one, we all know that the, the media is so sensationalist and, and clickbaity these days, right? I mean, they just care about, 
clicks and engagement, and, and that doesn't lend itself to a balanced, nuanced argument. But I think, as you were saying, you know, the, the benefits versus the, the negative impacts, they're not netted out. People just focus on one of the negative impacts. And as you said, if there's a 3% negative impact from an animal agriculture and a 10% from, you know, the medical system, if you adopted, you know, if, if more people ate, you know, a, a healthier diet based on, let's say, the carnivore diet in this case, how much net benefit would you get by diminishing or decreasing the negative impact from the medical side? You know, so it's these sort of issues that it, it's just not, uh, it's not popular. It, it's not good media, right? It's not something that people click on. And as you said, I mean, I'm concerned about it too, because, you know, the recent thing with Greta and like, look, I think it's awesome that a young person, if it is, you know, genuinely motivated and she's not being manipulated in whatever way, uh, I think it's great that she's got the courage and, and, and the, you know, the altruism to try to do what she thinks is best to mitigate her perceived, you know, concerns about the environment and the world. But I don't think it's good to drum up all this emotion and get people to scream and yell and jump on the streets and think that that's the way that we're going to, you know, reduce whatever negative impact we may or may not be having. I think it's, you know, in the individual daily hundreds per day choices that we make, that's going to you know, that's going to determine what kind of world we get. And I think that's lost on a lot of people. They think, no, I'm just going to hold up signs and somebody else is going to make that change for me. When really it's, you know, it's all those many decisions we make every day that's going to dictate the types of companies we have and what kind of products and services they offer us and that sort of thing. Um, Sean, we're a little over an hour. Do you, do you have a little bit more? I got a tiny bit, I got a little bit more for you. Yeah, I can, I can, I can hang around for a few more questions. Sure. Okay. okay. So um, one thing you mentioned that I think a lot of people think about uh, that I wanted to get your take on is LDL, right? A lot of people say if you go on a carnivore diet, then um, you know doctors have always said you know people that have a you know maybe at risk for heart disease, etc., reduce your red meat or or eliminate your red meat. That's you know often prescribed. People are afraid that their LDL will skyrocket on a carnivore diet. Now, over the last 10 years, let's say, there's been a, a lot of research that's come out that, that's been changing the net, well, that's provided more clarity on, on the role and the risks or lack thereof of LDL, whether it's impacted by the diet, if it is impacted by the diet, is it a negative, is that the metric we should be looking at? However, that new information doesn't seem to have permeated the, the medical culture yet. So what's your response to the carnivore diet LDL question? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's a very common one. You know, just in practicality, what we see when people do check this, uh, and, and I don't like to have people check it right away because weight loss can impact our blood lipids a lot, and there's a lot of dynamic uh, changes going on that may not re reflect long-term sort of the, the long-term picture. Um, I see many people where their LDL actually goes down, uh, many people where, where it doesn't change at all, like my case, it didn't really do much. And there are certainly a subset of people where we do see elevated levels of LDL, in fact, even fairly high, you know, 300 plus. And so I think when we look at cardiovascular disease risk, LDL, you know, has been considered a risk factor and part of, you know, the development of atherosclerosis requires cholesterol to be present. I mean, it's part of the process. doesn't mean it is the only thing driving that. And so it's multifactorial. And so I think that, 
you have to sort of, again, step out, look at the broad picture and look at all of the things that potentially um, affect your risk and those things, some of which you can tr- control, some of them you can't. And, you know, your age, your sex, your parental history you have no control over, but, you know, your diet, whether you smoke or not, whether you exercise, what your blood pressure may or may not be, um, if you're diabetic, if you are, uh, you know, inflamed, those things are all modifiable generally, and diet seems to do that. And so what I generally see is pretty much every single modifiable risk factor outside of LDL tends to improve uh, on the carnivore diet. So that is to say that people that are struggling with diabetes, prediabetes, generally see that improve. People that have inflammatory, elevated inflammation, inflammatory markers, that improves. Uh, things like uh, blood pressure tend to improve. Uh, so it's kind of one of those things where I, I don't ignore LDL. I think it's important to just put it in perspective and risk. There are sort of calculators, risk calculators out there. One I like to use is called the MESA calculator. It stands for the Multi-Ethnicity Study on Atherosclerosis. And so they, 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 they take a number of different factors and you can plug it in and see what your risk is like. Um, you know, if you are, so there are probably situations like if you've just had a heart attack or you are, you know, very, very sick and uh, inflamed and irritated and diabetic and, you know, maybe in that situation, uh, skyrocketing your LDL may, may be problematic. And so that's something where you might have to say, well, I'm transitioning and improving those other risk factor risk factors. I might have to do something with my LDL, whether it's take a medication or vary the diet a little bit, maybe, maybe select more different types of fats that, that do seem to you know, have have a role there. So, I, like I said, it's not that I discount it at all, but I think also, again, it's the problem we have with with you know population data and which cohort we're dealing with. We don't really have data on this population, which I which I live in. You know, we don't have data on low carb ketogenic carnivore diets with regard to what does LDL do to their you know clinical endpoints because it's just we just don't have the data yet. So we're still using large observational population data where most of the people are eating, you know, a standard American junk food diet. Most of them are, you know, underlying inflammation, hyperinsulinemia, so on and so forth. And so it's it's interesting, you know, what we're seeing, even in people with high cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, we're, we're starting to see very low coronary artery calcium scans, which would give you kind of a long-term snapshot of what's going on with your with your cardiovascular health. Uh, it's not perfect, but it is a very good, many people consider it a very good tool. Uh, we're actually even seeing, to some degree, reversal of calcification, which would be improvement in cardiovascular disease. And so that's actually occurring now. Now, that hasn't been published yet, but I think that's that's probably going to be done in the near future because people are collecting case reports. And I think we're going to see that in the literature probably in the next couple of years. Yeah, I, th- I think I heard you make a, a good analogy, uh, again, on another podcast where you said, it's kind of like starting a fire, right? You need wood to start a fire, but wood on its own, absent, you know, a spark and absent kindling and absent whatever else, you don't have to worry about it catching fire, you know? And I think the concerning part is, is that it, it is looked at in isolation by so many people who are prescribing statins and things of that nature today. You know, I have examples in my own family. And perhaps it's somewhat rational because maybe they just assume that everybody is on a, you know, a standard uh, American diet. And in that case, they probably do have sufficient inflammation and maybe other risk factors that, that, that maybe make it acceptable. But, you know, my opinion is like, why would you only, like, 
again, you've talked about this before too, but if, if you're not looking at LDL in conjunction with triglycerides, HbA1c, uh, inflammatory markers, then, you know, if, if all of those are good, then the, then the data seems to suggest that LDL is not really much of a problem. Th those, those markers may be the, the fire and the kindling and the other stuff in, in, in the fire analogy, right? But if, if all of those things are, are lower in healthy levels, then um, I, I saw a report, I think it was published relatively recently over the last year or so, but it was that high LDL actually um, was a marker for decreased mortality. Like the, 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 the higher the LDL, the, the, the less uh, mortality, you know? So it's, uh, it seems like the narrative around LDL is in, is in, is in need of, of shifting, especially when we consider that so many people are being prescribed based on that metric alone. Yeah, I think part of it has to do with uh, just the state of the modern healthcare system where it's it's really a conveyor belt. It's it's high volume, high turnover. Right. You don't have a lot of time to go into nuance and to, to sort of put everybody in individual sort of buckets. I mean, everybody, you know, and you're right. I mean, if I say a fire requires oxygen and a lightning strike and some wood, I mean, generally there's oxygen around and generally lightning sometimes strikes. So I think that's the attitude that most people take. It's like we assume that those factors are going to be in place and we don't need to bother investigate them because in 88% of the population, which are considered metabolically unhealthy, that's a pretty good, it's pretty good betting odds that if you reduce your LDL uh, for the general population, they're going to generally do better. But again, if you, you know, particularly as you're, if you're own, your own advocate and you understand that there's more nuance here and most physicians, I mean, I cannot tell you even today in 2019 when there's all this evidence out there that shows that LDL is not particularly a good isolated factor for predicting heart disease. I mean, at least look at things like oxidized or glycated LDL or particle count or, you know, some of the ratios, you know, HDL, uh, total cholesterol ratios or triglyceride HDL ratios. But there's still many people making a knee-jerk decision for lifelong medication and you know based on a single ldl reading which in my view is kind of insane yeah and you know patients don't question it they just they get put on their statin and they stay on it for 20 30 years and that's the end of the story and it, 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 it there's probably a lot of people that are unnecessarily medicated to do that and you are correct uh ldl i mean this is all in the context of cardiovascular disease but when we step away from cardiovascular disease and start looking at all-cause mortality because we all got to die of something. Right. And for me, you know, maybe dropping dead of a heart attack at 95 is not so bad. Whereas my other option could be maybe three years of cancer or 10 years of, of dementia or, you know, infectious disease or, you know, suicide or something like that. And we see that having high levels, sorry, low levels of LDL seem to put you at higher risk for those other problems, you know, and there's a number of studies showing that the lower your LDL is, the higher risk of you of dying from any disease, not necessarily cardiovascular, but you're going to die for something. Maybe it's going to be cancer. So I think we have to, you know, I think there has to be a more nuanced discussion around LDL. Yeah, I've also seen some of the data on the neuroprotective effects, right? The higher the LDL, the less incidences of uh, things like uh, dementia and Alzheimer's and, and things like that. So, yeah, it does. Yeah, seem I mean, it's, yeah, I was going to say it's interesting. There's new drugs out there. You know, these, uh, I think there's PCK, PC, P, PSCK9 inhibitors, which, I mean, they get their cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol down to unprecedentedly low levels. I mean, you know, whereas normal is around, you know, 100 to 120, 130, they're taking these people down below 30, you know, some places below 10. And I, I just suspect we're going to see some really 
interesting outcomes in those people, and, and, and they may not be interesting in a good way. They may be interesting in a very, very concerning way. Yeah, and there's so little recourse. You know, if, you, if, you, if your doctor prescribes this, first of all, if you come in and say, hey, I fished around on Google, and it looks like cholesterol, LDL's not so bad, you know, the doctor's going to roll their eyes and say, hey, I'm a doctor. I've got the experience here, so, you know, don't give me that crap. And I sympathize with that attitude because I'm sure everyone's coming in these days thinking they know, you know, what's going on. But nevertheless, the patient has very little recourse. And, you know, I've even people who are highly educated and who you listen to people like yourself and various other people that and most importantly, the recent data, you know, the last 10 years of data and meta-analyses and things of that nature that indicate that, you know, just looking at LDL in isolation and then prescribing a statin off the back of that is probably not the, the, the best course of action. Uh, you know, once a doctor prescribes something, it gains a gravity that you're really apprehensive about uh, going against, you know, because you just think like you got all this data and reason on one side, but you got the gravity of that authority figure on the other side saying, you know, do this for your health. And you don't want to take the risk of being wrong because, you know, it could could be, well, it's life and death in some cases. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is scary. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, obviously it's your body. You do not have to accept being on a medication if you if you feel strongly against that. I mean, whether or not that's in your best interest or not is is hard to say. Uh, you know, the outside of the context of one specific incident, but, and you also have the right in many cases, hopefully, you know, depending on where you live to pursue a different physician. I mean, there are many physicians out there that are, you know, supportive of, you know, you know, at least accepting that there are more things to worry about with regards to risk than just LDL cholesterol. And they're willing to monitor it and support you. And, you know, I, you know, I cannot tell you the number of people that, you know, they come in and, you know, they, I mean, everything has gotten better in their life. Every single objective clinical measure, they lose 100 pounds, their diabetes goes away, they come off all medications, their joint pain goes away, their depression goes away, they get off every medication, and, you know, their cholesterol goes up, and somehow the doctor thinks, well, it's yeah, bad. you're really, it's really bad, you know, and it's like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> being 100 pounds overweight is way worse, in my view, and I think many people who are, you know, probably looking at this from a from a you know more practical standpoint would say that that person has by and large dramatically improved their overall health outlook and to say that they are now at higher risk for whatever you know it just doesn't make sense yeah sean last two and and they're quick the the second last one is i know you've been asked about your your blood lab several times and uh in the podcast I listened to, I, I, I didn't hear you divulge that information. I think you, on Joe's podcast, you hadn't done it yet. And on some others, you were waiting to uh, talk about it on another podcast. But whether it's yours or whether it's the people that you've been advising or people in, in your community, I mean, what is the role of a blood lab in the carnivore diet? Like, is there things that people should be looking out for? Are there you know, what, what's the role of it beside, aside from your own subjective, I feel good and strong and that's good enough. Yeah. I mean, certainly I think, you know, uh, it's not that labs are unnecessary. I mean, but I think we sometimes import more value to them, you know, outside of what's going on clinically. And so I think you have to, if you're going to get labs and I don't necessarily discourage people from doing that, but you need to understand what we know and what we don't know about those labs and we need to get a complete picture. Like I said, if you're going to get your glucose, you probably should know what your insulin is doing. If you're going to get your LDL, you should probably get 
you know, maybe an advanced lipid panel. I mean, these things are, uh, you know, it's, it's too, it's, it's often anxiety provoking for people, you know, cause there's a lot of people that are, you know, that we call them biohackers where, I mean, they're, they're measuring constantly and every variable, whether we understand it or not, and even the physicians say, I don't really know what that means. Uh, you know, they're in there and they're trying to make some sense out of, you know, why did my LDL or why did my HDL go down three points compared to last time? Am I doing something wrong? And it causes some anxiety and a sense of panic when, you know, you're looking, well, how are you doing clinically? And they're like, I still feel great. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's just one of those things where you have to sort of put it in perspective, understand what's going on clinically. I still value clinical, uh, you know, clinical endpoints become more important to me than what's going on in your blood at, you know, you know, 8.15 a.m. on Tuesday. I mean, that could be completely anomalous. In fact, if I, if I were to draw 100 different lab panels on you, even if you were in perfect health and everything was ideal, and we, we just knew, for example, that you are just as ideal, as optimal as you could be, at perfect body composition, no clinical problems whatsoever, and I drew your blood, I drew 100 labs, probably 20 of them would be outside of normal range. And then we then all of a sudden we say, well, why is this? Maybe we need to take this supplement or maybe we need to change this food. And I think it, it in many cases, it, it creates more problems than it solves. Now, if you're sick, if there's an issue, if you know you've been dealing with, say, thyroid disorder and you've had chronically uh, you know, elevated, elevated levels of TSH and you wanna see how the diet is impacting that, that seems to make sense. You know, there are some basic screening labs that everybody gets that you know, may or may not be uh, uh, important. Um, I think I like to look at long-term indicators of health and, you know, the labs are very short-term indicators. It's what happened in the last 30 seconds in your bloodstream. And so if we were to say, for instance, coronary artery calcium test, you know, over 45, you can get an idea of what's been going on in the last 10 years. Have you been doing the right things or not? You know, hopefully it's, you know, like mine was zero. You know, I had a perfect coronary artery calcium scan despite eating gobs of fat and gobs of steak for, you know, almost a decade, right? So, I mean, that's important to me. You know, just a simple waist-to-height measurement, you know, because that will tell you a lot about what's going on. I mean, it doesn't matter. There are people out there that are morbidly obese that have really nice labs. I mean, they look on paper. They wow, You look at their labs and say, this person's great. But then you look at them and you're like, wow, this person really has some issues that they've got to deal with. And so, um, you know, I, like I said, I, that's why I ask people what labs, you know, should you get? And I, I just say, what do you really want to know? And, you know, what are you going to, what are you going to compare it to? And, and what are you going to, how, what context are you going to use it in? And right. that's kind of how I look at those. So is it fair to say that, that when you did yours, you derived no insights that caused any change in approach? The, everything was acceptable to you? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't do any changes. Uh, you know, I mean, I saw a number of things that you know was were were kind of cool. I mean, you know, but there are some things that other people have raised a lot of people's eyebrows. You know, like I said, for instance, um, you know, my inflammatory markers were almost completely zero. My kidney and, and liver function tests were normal. Uh, you know, there were you know there were there were my my insulin sensitivity was extremely high, um, which which goes with you know my general clinical sort of uh, description. But there were people concerned that my blood glucose was elevated. And, you know, it was relatively higher than you'd like to see. It was in the 120s. And so people said, well, you're obviously, uh, you're, you're, you're diabetic or pre-diabetic. And I'm like, well, clinically, that is not going on. First of all, my insulin was super low. And so we realized there's a relationship between insulin and blood glucose. And then also we have to put in the fact that 
I'm kind of an outlier from an athletic standpoint. In fact, that I'm you know actually breaking world records and I'm competing and training in a way that's requiring a lot more glucose than the average person would need. And we have gluconeogenesis because I'm eating no glucose. I'm not taking any in, so I'm making all the glucose that I need. And and for what reasons do I need higher blood glucose? Because I'm performing at a level that requires a lot of glucose. And when we look at other athletes, and there's been some studies on other athletes and the same phenomenon's happening, high-level, high-performance athletes engaged in highly glycolytic sprinting-type training see their blood glucose go up. And so I understood that physiology. And like I said, it would be, the other argument would be, well, my insulin's so low that I'm a type two diabetic that's turning into a type one and a half diabetic and my liver is, my, my pancreas is failing and I'm not going to be producing any more insulin anymore. I'm going to be an insulin dependent guy. And that just doesn't go with clinical, with the clinical findings because I, I have no problem making insulin when I need it. Uh, you know, and, and I looked at my, you know, uh, what it did do was have me check my glucose on a regular basis with a glucometer because I was like, well, this is interesting. I want to know more. And then I saw that my glucose, while it was higher in the morning, it was extremely, extremely stable throughout the day, even after meals. It would even sometimes go down after a meal, which is kind of a neat neat phenomenon because that's probably the few times that I was actually putting out insulin. It's because when I was, you know, when I, when I got some protein, I have a little insulin spike and then it would, you know, force my, my glucose into the cells. So, um, you know, I didn't really, uh, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, what, what concerns me is my, my own personal function. And I, I think that's more informative to me. And I, and I, like I said, I've seen literally tens of thousands of labs on people. And I know like some of it's relevant and some of it's not. So you have to put it in, in perspective clinically. Right. Final question. How do we make Dr. Sean Baker a Bitcoiner? What's it going to take for you to finally make the plunge? You're you're, uh, you know, you're ripe. I can tell. This, you know this has to happen. Well, I, I just need to, I need I need to start getting more income. You know when I when I uh, you know, I've got to get enough income to start investing. That's that's probably the biggest thing there. And then I probably need someone that can that can uh, uh, you know kind of guide me through it and get me you know kind of kind of help me lose my Bitcoin virginity so to speak, <laughs> and so I don't mess it up and you know get get you know, make some silly mistakes. Well, conventional wisdom is this. It's very simple. Instead of thinking about it as kind of like a big lump sum investment, every month you squirrel away 10 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it is, and you, what's become the most popular meme in the space is called stacking sats. A sat, a satoshi is the smallest denomination of a Bitcoin. There's 100 million satoshis in a Bitcoin. That's divisible that way. And so you just stack those satoshis, you stack those stats, you don't think about it, you don't think about other coins, you find a, a safe way to store it, buy it on a regular basis, and over time, it adds up, and then you, you know, you're, you're, you're involved and you're starting to learn and your, your, your funds are appreciating based on the, the growth of the Bitcoin and the Bitcoin network. So uh, a lot of people tend to maybe over overcomplicate it, but the thing is, it's just, Get started, and uh, as you go along, I'm sure you'll get further down the rabbit hole. And uh, the reason why I'm asking you, of course, is because I know the community would love to have someone like you involved and uh, know that you're a Bitcoiner and, uh, you know, a, a, obviously a very important voice in the in the diet and nutritional space. So, yeah, well, I, I I'm certainly not opposed to it at all. And like I said, I that's something that hopefully I can do. You know, I guess what do you call it? Hodling, you know, H O D L. That's you know, the, right. The, the transposition error that, that turned into the, you know, type of thing there. But yeah, no, I, I'm definitely interested. You know, I, like I said, I know Michael and I know Safe, and I'm sure those guys could 
you know, get me. Uh, oh, they they could yeah. absolutely get you set up. But if get if you set up well, it's just a matter of you know pulling the trigger, I suppose. Yeah, if you need any information, I'm I'm available as a resource too. So just yeah, let, so I'll let, tell, let I'll, I, what I'll do is I will try to make 2020 uh, that year that I that I do that. How's that sound? I'll I'll put a pledge that I'll that'll be my New Year's resolution for 2020 just to put some money into Bitcoin or put some, you know, and then just just keep it for for however long it makes sense. Sounds good. Uh, look, Sean, thanks so much for the time. I know we went a bit over, but uh, you're just such a wealth of uh, knowledge. And this is such an interesting topic for me. And I know everybody else who's listening. So I appreciate the time. You've got a book coming out in November, right? Yeah, The Carnivore Diet by Sean Baker, MD. It's out November 19th. It's up for pre-order. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, and a couple other places for international distribution. I think I got those links on my Instagram, Sean Baker, nineteen sixty-seven. So, hopefully, uh, it seems like it's going to do well. I mean, the pre-sales have already been pretty good. So, I've got a uh, Simon and Schuster's is a publisher via Victory Belt. So, we should have uh, hopefully a pretty good uh, you know run with that, I suppose. And hopefully, we'll get this information out to the masses in, in a larger way and uh, you know drive the conversation and then maybe maybe we won't have so many darn sick people uh, they can be healthy they, they can be healthy and, and uh, hang on to some bitcoin <laughs> absolutely man I, I couldn't agree more and uh yeah i think it's going to have a really big impact i'm looking forward to it coming out so i wish you the best of luck with that and uh keep doing the awesome work that you're doing it's uh, i'm sure it's helping so many people and really having a you know, a big multiplier effect. So uh, just keep up the great work. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, John. All right, brother. Take care of yourself.